my friends. Today's episode is not an easy episode. It's not an easy topic, I should say. And yet it's so necessary and it is on parents' mind. And we and We Are Brave Together want to arm you with tools and resources and information and empower you to have the discussions and empower you to ask hard questions. And so today we are talking with Toby Stark, who is the founder of Stark Consulting Group. We're talking about sexual abuse prevention. Specifically, we're going to talk about questions to ask the organizations that our children or adult children are involved in and are supported by. This is definitely a vast, vast topic. So today's episode is is sort of niched down and there's definitely more to come. Toby built Start Consulting Group on the foundation of her many years working as a child advocate and the national reputation she earned in child sexual abuse prevention. She doesn't just give prevention lip service. She helps organizations, communities, and parents do what is truly needed to better protect the youth for whom they are responsible. SCG works with parents as well as national amateur youth sports, youth serving organizations, and school systems on child sexual abuse awareness prevention and response. Specifically, Toby creates and provides child sexual abuse prevention and response training and works with organizations to either strengthen or develop their youth protection policies and procedures. All work is research informed and steeped in best practices. I want to give a little trigger warning that this is a weighty topic. I don't encourage you to listen to this in the car with your children. Make sure that you are in the right space as we talk about sexual abuse prevention. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. Hi, Toby. Welcome to Brave Together Podcast. Oh, Jessica, thank you for having me. I I appreciate it so much. I am so glad that we crossed paths and that we are doing this episode today, even though it's heavy and weighty and not something that we really want to talk about. But we know as mothers, parents, human beings, the more education that we have, the better we are to take care of our our kids. So today's topic about sexual abuse prevention is large, huge, immense, as big as the ocean. And I'm guessing we'll probably have further conversations or possibly some some workshops or webinars with you. And uh, but today for today's episode, we're going to hone in on giving parents questions to ask the organizations that their kids or adult kids are involved with to really assess, do these organizations make sexual abuse prevention a priority? That's exactly where we're going to go. And, you know, I want to acknowledge first and foremost that, you know, the parents who are part of the We Are Brave community have exponential responsibilities beyond families with typically developing children. And I hate to be the person who walks in and says, and guess what? There's more. 
But you really are exactly right that, you know, if we can today educate and inspire and empower action and help your listeners walk away with really concrete, practical things that they can do to minimize the risk of abuse, then I hope it helps people feel um, knowledgeable and empowered and almost stronger. And so that's what I want to do. You know, all organizations will say that child sexual abuse prevention is important. I don't think we'll ever hear anybody say it's not. But with these five questions, we can help determine whether child sexual abuse prevention is important or a priority. And we want our kids with organizations where it is a priority. Absolutely. You know, we know that many of the prevention measures or warning signs for families with um, typically developing children aren't always applicable to um, to families who are part of the brave. We are brave together community. But these these questions are kind of are unifying. They're relevant and important to to any family. And, and I really think the place to start is at the very, very beginning. And I think we need to ask organizations, what are their hiring and screening processes? And notice I said hiring and screening, because a lot of organizations utilize volunteers as a very big part of their operation. And what we want to make sure is a couple of things, but what we want to make sure of is that Everything they're doing as part of their hiring and screening process is being implemented consistently across the board because we don't know who's going to be interacting with our children, whether it's a paid employee, whether it's a volunteer. So we just want to make sure it's consistent. And when we ask about hiring and screening, really what we're getting at is, are they doing more than background checks? And let me explain why that is important. Background checks, you know, this is this is what you hear all organizations say, but we do background checks. Background checks are very important, but they're important as part of a larger comprehensive hiring process. We don't ever want that to be the single data point, so to speak, that an organization uses to hire somebody because many reasons, but the main reason is background checks tell us when someone has been not just caught, but convicted. So, I mean, let's let's think about this in, in this subject matter. Think about how many perpetrators there are against children and adults as well. Okay, then let's break that down to how many of them get caught. Very few, for a variety of reasons. And then let's break that down even more to if one is arrested, what are the odds of them being convicted, which is really extremely low given the difficulty with evidence um, in this sort of a a crime and transgression. So we have to remember what background checks tell us. They tell us when somebody has been caught and convicted. So again, important piece of information, but never should it be the only piece of information. Thank you for really explaining that. That's really helpful because I'm not well-versed in background checks. And so I wouldn't know that it only covers that. It was really a small percentage. Well, I think, you know, Jessica, to your point, I think very few people 
outside of either this type of arena or law enforcement will will know that. And, you know, a couple of other things to bear in mind regarding background checks is that they're not all created equal. If an organization says they're doing a background check, what you don't know is, are they doing a federal background check or are they doing a local background check, which could be countywide, it could be citywide, it could be statewide. So they're just not all created equal. And we also don't know, does a background check bring up misdemeanors and felonies or just felonies? So these are all reasons why it's so important that a background check is really one data point in a comprehensive hiring and screening process. Uh, thank you for that, Toby. Thank you. So what else? What else? Well, the other thing that, oh, is so important are youth protection policies and procedures. And this is a gigantic question because while we're talking about youth protection policies and procedures, these policies and procedures have many parts to it. So I think, first of all, you just want to know, do they have any? Um, Because not a lot do. What a lot of organizations will say to us is, well, it's just how we do things. It's, It's just how we run our organization. It's what's important to us. It's how we do it. And that's fantastic. But policies and procedures do a couple things. Number one, when it comes to child protection or youth protection, it takes the personal assessment out of the equation. So no longer do we have to make a decision based on our personal opinion, which can be influenced by a lot of things. It can be influenced by our life experiences. It can be influenced by the stature and status of the people we're interacting with. But if we have policies and procedures, then your child protection efforts are going to be theoretically implemented consistently across the board, no matter who the employee is and no matter who the other individual is. What's an example, Toby? Um, couple of examples. Let me, let me share. 80% of all child sexual abuse happens in isolated, uninterruptible, one-on-one situations. So when we say one-on-one, we mean something that is not visible and it is not interruptible. So it's, it's very possible to have private interactions that are not considered one-on-one, Right. Um, So probably one of the most important policies that an organization could have is a no one-on-one policy. Well, I'll tell you, that can be a very inconvenient policy. I mean, that can really, yeah, it can be very inconvenient. It can even cost an organization some money because they might have to hire more people so that they don't have that situation. So if you have an individual who maybe is not motivated or doesn't feel like they're being held accountable, that's a policy that is really easy to skirt. But also on the flip side, if I see one of my coworkers or if I see a direct report in a one-on-one situation, that can be really tricky for me to say, hey, so-and-so, 
you're really not supposed to be one-on-one with our kids or with our participants. That's un- that can sound really accusatory, right? That can be really uncomfortable for all involved. Um, and it's not an accusation, but it sure does. It can feel that way and sound that way. But if your policies and procedures have that, then it's, hey, none of us are supposed to be one-on-one with the participants. This has nothing to do with you and what I think of you as a human being. Okay, that's a great example. Reporting is a twofold question. Number one, it needs to be part of the policies and procedures. Reporting what? Well, exactly. Reporting offers two directions. One, what are the internal reporting requirements for that organization? versus what are your legal responsibilities for reporting. So let's talk about legal first. And um, most inconveniently, all states have different child sexual abuse reporting laws. Um, Here in Indiana, for example, we have one of the most stringent where every single person in the state of Indiana is a mandated reporter of a reasonable suspicion or knowledge of child sexual abuse, child abuse, or neglect. That's broad. That's my favorite mandate, <laughs> mandated law, but not every state has that. So it's very important that people understand, parents as well as youth workers and organizations, know what their mandatory reporting laws are to meet your legal obligations. However, Organizations can have more stringent reporting laws if your state doesn't have a particularly strong one. So, for example, if you're in a state that says maybe just teachers are mandated reporters or, you know, there's some states that actually say just healthcare workers. So if my state has that law, I can put in my policies and procedures that our company policy is to report suspected or known abuse to local law enforcement or child protective services within 24 hours or immediately. So parents can learn, parents must learn what their state mandated reporting laws are, but also understand that an organization can make it tighter if they so choose. You know, the fact is, if If you live in a state that has a loose reporting law, but your company policy is stringent, somebody isn't going to have legal liability if they don't report, but they're not going to work at your organization anymore. And there's a lot to be said for that. So, you know, when we talk about reporting, it should be not just known, but a reasonable suspicion of abuse. It is not our job to know whether this really happened. It's not our job. There are people who have that exact job. Our job is to let them know of this suspicion or known abuse. And when we say report, it's not to your boss. We're talking about to local law enforcement or to child protective services. So it's good to have an internal reporting mechanism, but employees should not have to go to their boss first. They should be able to do what is either right or legally required and then let their boss know about it. So so the reporting is, you know, both it should be a part of the policies and procedures, but also employees have to understand it. 
And that sort of leads into the next question, and and that is training. Um, What kind of child sexual abuse prevention and response training are, are staff, volunteers, employees getting? A couple things. Number one, is it research informed? We know that there are very specific things that people and organizations can do to minimize the risk of abuse. We know this for for a fact. They've been researched, peer-reviewed, etc. So are you getting a training that is based on the research or based on someone's personal opinion or someone's religious teachings or you know, community standards. So number one, is it research informed? And the second question is, is it mandatory for everyone? Because organizations will often say, well, we have, you know, we have child sexual abuse prevention training. Well, first of all, is it mandatory? And second of all, is it mandatory for everyone? Kind of like going back to the background checks. We want to make sure that no matter who is interacting with our child is gone through the same rigorous process and training. So we want we want consistency. I appreciate how specific your questions are because it would be easy to just hear, yes, we've all been through the training, but to take it, you know, one or two steps further and to really know that everyone that touches that organization, whether it's someone who is just the transport service for an outing, let's say, is that driver also vetted. Exactly. And you you bring up a great point, Jessica. You know, we've talked about employees and volunteers, but these should also apply to third party providers like a driving service, for example. And, you know, one thing I do want to acknowledge is we're making it sound very easy right now. This is what I do for a living. And I've been doing this for a long time and I'm still uncomfortable asking these questions. Uh, You know, I'm sure there are people who this is not a problem for them. They're very comfortable asking this, but I personally am still uncomfortable when I ask these questions. And you know what? That doesn't matter. My discomfort is not relevant to this conversation. My child's safety is what is relevant to this conversation. And I just have to figure out how to set my discomfort aside so that I can do what I need to do for my child. So I don't ever want to pretend that these are easy conversations. They're simple. You know, they're not complicated but they're not necessarily easy. And the only answer to that is so. Toby, what would you say to parents who are really fearful and mistrusting? So I'm just going to take care of my child 24 seven for the rest of their life because I'm so afraid or I've heard these stories or this happened to my friend's kid. And for me, who's a proponent of parents getting breaks, parents being able to engage in self-care, parents being able to preserve their relationships, their friendships, their own mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health, 
being 24-7 with your child for the rest of their life is not conducive to your own strong mental health. And so what do you say to parents who are really, really afraid? What I say is we want to live our life and we want to parent based on facts, information, knowledge, not based on fear. We cannot live our own life and we cannot raise our children from a perspective of fear. We have to live our life and raise our children from the perspective of knowledge. So the statistics are nothing short of horrifying. And it's really easy to go exactly where you just said, oh my God, with these numbers, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let anybody near my kid. Well, there's a difference between everyone is a perpetrator versus anybody could be a perpetrator. So when we as a family have our child protection measures and philosophy and do's and don'ts, we have to be consistent and we have to be constant because it has nothing to do with how well you know somebody or don't know somebody. It has nothing to do with where they live, the good zip code or bad zip code. We're protecting our children. And this is how we do it. And it doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter any of those things. And so there's a very, very big difference between not trusting anybody and sort of respecting the statistics and making sure that we're doing all we can consistently and constantly. Thank you. This is really good, specific, and helpful information. And I I will have to maybe save this for another episode, Toby, but how do we, when we invite caregivers, respite babysitters, therapists, behavior therapists, nurses, whoever it is, into our home, what are some things that we need to have in place in our home, in our family, to also be preventative and careful. So I'll save that for another episode. That is another episode, but I will answer that teeny, with a teeny tiny answer. Um, I'm going to flip this. As an organization, you want to have these policies and procedures and you want to have this training, et cetera, et cetera, because you don't want to be the low hanging fruit to somebody with ill intention. If somebody has an intention to hurt children, they're going to want to go to the organization where they don't talk about this. They don't talk about it. They don't have anything formally in writing. That's where I want to work. So let's translate that to a family. Okay. So if a family is having open and honest and regular conversation using the correct names for the private parts, talking about touches that can make you uncomfortable or feel icky, you know, that you're allowed to say no. And and I use that in air quotes because I know we have an audience that has um, different developmental abilities. But if, if we are a family that is pretty regularly having this conversation and it's normalized, that in and of itself 
keeps you from being the low-hanging fruit. So you want to make sure that your caregivers know that we have these conversations and, you know, that we are teaching our children the proper body part names. We are teaching our children that um, if they are being touched in a way that makes them uncomfortable, just like we're teaching them how to ask for a snack, we're teaching them how to alert us to that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And we need to keep hearing that and we need to keep talking about it and we need reminders to keep talking about it. Thank you, Toby. And, you know, in tackling something like this, and I just, I thank you for the work that you are doing. And I have lots of people that I want to connect you with. So we'll, we will stay in touch for sure, Toby. Well, this is my honor. And I want to thank and acknowledge you um, for having this conversation and sharing this conversation with your community. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Jessica. It's been, been a pleasure. you could do us a great favor by leaving a review and a rating. It helps our podcast get into the ears of more and more moms. Also, if you have never joined the international community and sisterhood of We Are Brave Together, go to our website, wearebravetogether.org and fill out the little form to be a part. We are here to support you and validate you, encourage you, and give you resources for your journey as a mom. Thanks so much for listening.